This will be my last sermon for a couple Sabbaths, and uh, the way that the schedule has fallen, um, this uh, is the most difficult sermon I've ever preached. I can say it that way. It'd be a true statement. I would have spent, I tried to calculate it, I couldn't quite come up with an exact tally, but I would have spent not less than 20 hours this week getting ready for today's sermon. And uh, as of 10 o'clock last night, you can ask my wife, she'll tell you it's true, I went to sleep and I said, sweetheart, at this point there is an 80% chance that I'm going to stand up in front of the church and say, Beloved, I've studied and I don't have anything to say, but God bless you, let's have prayer. And that was going to be it. And uh, at least half of you would have, would have let out a giant cheer, I'm sure. Um, but as it turns out, I woke up early this morning, about 4 o'clock, and uh, continue to get my nose into the book and, and the books and try to come up with something coherent and cogent and meaningful to say on what is, in my estimation, my opinion, I don't know, Nathan, what that's about. I me just to switch over to one of these, but they sound terrible, though. Tell me what to do back there. Go with this one? Okay, we'll just, I'll try not to be so electric. Um, I'm trying to find something that is coherent and, and compelling to say on what I regard as uh, the single most difficult thing in all of Scripture. Now, if you're familiar with the text of Scripture, you know that that's a very big thing to say because there are a lot of troubling, difficult, confusing, mystifying passages in Scripture. But in my humble opinion, there is none more mystifying than the specific commands that God gave to Israel to go into Canaan and to wipe out the seven nations that were occupying the land of Canaan. We know them as the Canaanites. They were, in fact, seven different nations, but because that was the land of Canaan, they were known sometimes just homogeneously as the Canaanites. And God gave the Israelites, after their many years of wilderness wandering, a very specific command to go in and to dispossess and utterly destroy them. And that is an, I will say, a very difficult thing to reconcile with the picture that we have of God in Christ. Tremendously difficult. Some would say impossible. Uh, I think that there is a way, a circuitous way to navigate ourselves through this difficult section of Scripture. And we're going to try and do that today because, frankly, if we can't answer this question to at least some level of basic coherence and satisfaction, it doesn't make a lot of sense to continue on with the rest of the story. Because the rest of the story from the kings to the exile and culminating with Messiah proceed on the assumption that God is good, that God is fair, that God is kind, that God is just, and indeed everything that we've encountered up to this point indicates to us that God is fair and just and good and kind and gracious. And yet we, we encounter in parts of Deuteronomy, parts of Exodus, parts of Numbers, and most of Joshua and some of Judges. What would not be described as a speed bump, but for some an insurmountable hurdle to belief in God and especially to belief in God's goodness. Can we affirm the basic goodness of God in, the, in light of and in the context of the commands that he gave to the Israelites to destroy and dispossess the Canaanites. And we're going to try and answer that question today. I'll be honest with you. I find elements of my answer very satisfying. 
and other elements not as satisfying. And I'll leave it to you to decide which of those are which. Um, I wouldn't want what I'm going to say today to be regarded as anything like the final or even the definitive word on this subject. But I do think in not just the hours of study that I've done this week, but the years of study that I've done on this topic, that God has given me something of value to say. And uh, I, I hope that it will be a blessing to you. If you're sitting there thinking, meh, what's the big deal? That would only be a confession of your basic ignorance about the biblical text. The text is tough. It's thorny. It's problematic. It's difficult. And so if you're a bit dismissive about this long preamble that I'm giving, that means to me that you just haven't wrestled with the text. It is not an easy thing. I've been wrestling all week, and I find myself bloodied and bruised here on Sabbath morning. going to try and make some semblance of an answer for this very thorny and difficult question. So without further preamble, we're going to pray, and we're going to get right into the text of Scripture. This is going to require a lot of thinking and a lot of believing and faith and confidence in God's basic goodness as manifested in His Son, Jesus. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, big day today. You know, I've been uh, looking forward to, would not be exactly the truth. I have been anticipating this day for months now. And Lord, I've had the privilege to preach all over the world on many different passages, but I've always been able to sort of preach on what I wanted to preach on. But here, Father, when we as a pastoral team elected to preach through the Old Testament, we knew good and well there were going to be some thorny passages, some problematic and difficult passages, and we find ourselves here, Father, at the most thorny and the most monumentally problematic, at least from my perspective. Father, I pray that you'll give me something of coherence to say, something that is persuasive and compelling and beautiful. And Father, while I am confident that not every answer will be given and that there will still be questions that remain, I pray that we will be able to see that there is a way to navigate ourselves through this and still retain our picture of the goodness of God, the mercy of God, as shown to us in your Son, Jesus. And so, Father, please help us as we wrestle with a thousands-year-old document and we come to grips with it and help us to see it for what it is, not to sweep it under the rug, but to try and see what it is that you're communicating here. And, Father, if there are lessons of encouragement, may we receive those. And if there are lessons of warning, and surely there are, help us to receive those as well. Father, I pray that you will give us a double portion of your Spirit today. Illumine us that we might come away with a more robust and biblical understanding of these problematic passages of Scripture. This is my prayer for your spirit. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. Amen. All right, I want to start by just going sort of a big overview of the topic. I'm calling the sermon today, Jehovah, Joshua, and Genocide. Right? Jehovah, Joshua, and Genocide. One of the chief complaints and one of the chief concerns And even objections that are raised by non-believing peoples, atheists in particular, is how could you conceivably regard the Bible as some kind of a holy book or a moral book or a virtuous book when it unashamedly, unapologetically, and unabashedly affirms what is tantamount to genocide? And this is a claim that is not easily answered. We're going to do our best to answer it today, and we're going to try and wrestle through Jehovah Joshua and genocide. Now, why Joshua? Well, because we find ourselves here 
in the fourth of seven chapters. Uh, Jared's sermon next Sabbath will be a summary of the book of Joshua where the Israelites are finally, after their many years of wilderness wandering, going in to take possession of the land. The problem is, is that there are people in the land, people that regard the land as their own, people who have lives and families and occupations and homes and cities, and God has promised this land to his people. And a clash is coming, an inevitable consequence is coming in which those people are going to have to be either dispossessed or destroyed in order for God to put his people where he had promised he would when he made his promise to Abraham many hundreds of years before. And so we find ourselves precariously perched here at the end of Torah. Those are the first five books of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we're moving now into Joshua and later Judges and then into the Kings. Eventually we'll be into Kings. How is it that God can say the things that he says in Scripture? And how is it that we can then regard him as good when he says those things that strike us as very problematic and hard to harmonize with the larger picture that we have of the goodness of God? We're not going to read through every problematic passage, and there are even some that come later, not just in the possession of the land of Canaan. We don't have time to deal with the giant conversation of religion and violence, and particularly with violence in the Old Testament. But I think if we can get our bearings in the story of Joshua, it will set a trajectory for us for all of the rest of Scripture. And so we're going to be dealing specifically with the situation that Joshua And the Israelites found themselves in when God said to them, go in and possess the land of Canaan. Now, some of the passages that are the thorniest of them are Numbers 33, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 20, the entire book of Joshua, especially the first 11 chapters, and then also the book of Judges, which really functions in the Bible as a kind of Joshua part 2. And uh, this is not an exhaustive list of the problematic passages, but it does sort of orient us to the passages where God says, go into Canaan, dispossess, and destroy if necessary. But he doesn't just say destroy in some specific sense. In fact, there's almost no specificity. He doesn't say only military men or only men full stop. He says the men and the women and the children and even, he says, the livestock. Everything that breathes Everything that moves, go in there and put it to the sword. How do we make sense of this? Well, let's start with a big context. First of all, let's remember where we are in the stream of what we've been learning going all the way back to beginning family and exodus. Where are we? And I'm going to race through this. So for those of you that have been with us on this journey, this will move, uh, you'll you'll be right with me. Those of you that are, you know, maybe just coming here for the first Sabbath or just visiting, uh, this might be a little quick. First of all, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, God told Noah to make an ark, and the ark was for the righteous. Now, only eight people went on that ark, but it's implicit in the text and explicit when you look at the size of the dimensions of the ark that there was room for many more. It wasn't just room for the eight, there was room for many more. In Genesis chapter 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he expressly says, Abraham, I'm calling you so that through you I can bless all the nations. Okay, so there's this global scope, both in Genesis 6 and also in Genesis 15, to bless the earth. In you, God said, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis 18, and this might be the key story, at least in the book of Genesis, that gives us 
a way to unlock this problematic issue. You might remember that God has appeared to Abraham and he has said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to go destroy or at least investigate what's happening in Sodom. And uh, implicit in that investigation, Abraham understood, was a destruction. And Abraham knows that his nephew Lot is there and so he protests and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Surely you wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. And then he says this fascinating thing. He says, Abraham speaking to God, wouldn't the judge of all the earth do the right thing? Now just let the force of that settle in. Abraham understood the basic fairness and necessity of God, if he's going to be good, has to be fundamentally fair. And his question is, what? You're going to destroy? He knows that his nephew Lot is there, who he regards as righteous. Would you, would, would the judge of all the earth destroy the righteous with the wicked? Will not the judge of the earth do what's right? And so this bargaining begins, and it starts at 50, and then finally to 40 and 45, and it begins to make its way down all the way to 10. And God actually says to Abraham, if there were 10 righteous in Sodom, I would preserve it. Abraham ceases his, his bargaining. He doesn't go any lower than 10, because Abraham cannot imagine that there couldn't possibly be at least 10 in a city that numbered probably in the thousands and certainly the hundreds. Surely, surely there would be 10 righteous. And so Abraham thinks incorrectly that he has preserved Sodom. When in fact goes, God arrives and he finds that there were some righteous but nowhere near 10 and the city is destroyed. But this provides us an insight into this basic idea, this fundamental idea that is not foreign to Moses that God can't just go around wiping the wicked out and the righteous together unilaterally, and, and that's not fair. That's not right. Well, not the God of all the earth do right. Abraham pleads for Sodom. That's in Genesis 18. God sends Moses to Pharaoh. Just a big picture here of how God, there's a universality of God's love. There's a universality of God's attention and even his affection And it's quite interesting because when you study this through, God actually sent Moses to Pharaoh twice. The first time he sent him as a little baby to Pharaoh's daughter. Actually, you could say three times. He was then returned and then sent back probably at the age of 12, 13, or 14. And he lived in Pharaoh's house with a knowledge of the true God for decades. He didn't leave until he was was 40. And then later at the age of 80, God sends Moses again. And so you could make a case that God sent Moses to Pharaoh, not just once, but twice, and even, in a way, three times. And in each case, Moses was there with the knowledge of the true God. First of all, that had been given to him from his mother, and then later that had been given to him from God himself at the burning bush. And the initial request that was made of Pharaoh, I remind you, was a very reasonable request. It wasn't, hey, Pharaoh, let the children of Israel go, and may your entire economy be utterly eradicated. The original request was, let my people go for three days' journey into the wilderness to hold a feast to me. It's as if God was testing the waters to see, is there any acquiescence? Is there any reason? Is there any room for negotiation here? Is there any elasticity? Give, give me my, my son, my firstborn, for just three days. And Pharaoh, as the text says, hardens his heart, and he hardens his heart, and he hardens his heart, and he hardens his heart. God sends successive plagues in chapters 7 to 11. God didn't just come right out with the death of the firstborn. No, it began with plague number one. Is Pharaoh's heart softened? No, it's hardening. Plague number two is his heart softening. You get this sense that God is laboring with Pharaoh. 
it wouldn't be too far a reach to say that God is interested in Pharaoh, that God is invested in Pharaoh, that God wants Pharaoh's heart. We're going to see an instance of this later in Scripture with a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Look at this very interesting text from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7. Moses, speaking to the children of Israel, says, Do not despise an Edomite, the descendants of Esau, for the Edomites are related to you. Yeah, you think of them as Gentiles, but don't look down your nose at the Edomites. They are related to you. And I thought this was very interesting. God said to the children of Israel through Moses, Do not despise an Egyptian because you resided as foreigners in their country. What a fascinating thing that even though eventually the Israelites would become slaves, it didn't start that way. Originally, Egypt opened its borders with a kind of kindness, with a kind of fraternal care and compassion. Yes, by all means. And of course, they had benefited hugely from the ministry of Joseph. But but there was this mutuality. There was this, hey, you come and we'll help you out. You scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. And so I love this, that even many years later in Deuteronomy, God says, don't look down your nose at an Egyptian. You used to be a foreigner in their land. And so you see this sort of desire of God to reach out to Pharaoh. He sends successive plagues. And then we come into the actual giving of the law in all of Exodus and later uh, books of the Torah as well. And this phrase comes up again and again where God says, Hey, look, the same law that applies to the Jew applies to the foreigner as well. In other words, the Jews were not elite. They were not regarded as somehow genetically special or as God's favorites. In fact, they were simply the covenant people. They were the descendants of Abraham. But I remind you again that they knew that the whole purpose of the call of Abraham was to bless the world, not to become simply the repository of the riches of God for themselves. And so we have this idea here that, that the law for you and the law for you, that God is treating people with impartiality, that he's treating people with kindness and um, with fairness. Then we have in Deuteronomy chapter 2, when the Israelites were preparing to go into the Canaan land, God was very explicit. He said, do not bother the Moabites, the Ammonites, or the Edomites. Leave them alone. In other words, this wasn't just like an absolute ransacking of every nation that was non-Jewish. No. The specific, and I can't emphasize this enough, the specific and unusual call that God gave to the children of Israel applied to these seven nations and these seven nations alone. In fact, God was explicit. He said, if you go into the land of Edom or Ammon or Moab, don't, don't, even, don't take any of their stuff. That land doesn't belong to you. Don't even put your foot in their land in terms of taking up residency. You can pass through. So we have this idea here that that God is not just unilaterally saying, kill them all, slay them all. They're not Jews. They're not my favorite people. Just wreck them. That's not what he's saying. There was something peculiar about these seven nations. We're going to get to that in just a bit. That God said, okay, these nations, leave them alone. We're going to see in a bit. These cities you can make treaties with. We'll see this. But these... Um, they have to be dispossessed or utterly destroyed. And that's the next point there. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, you find Moses giving very interesting instructions. He says, if you come to a far-off city, you can make a treaty with them. In fact, you can go and present yourself peacefully and say, hey, look, we want to occupy this land that's just adjacent to you. And he says, if they're peaceful with you, you can be peaceful with them. If they attack you, God says, you can respond. But here's the point. God is making a sort of hierarchy or a sort of differentiation between the Canaanites, who he regards as needing to be treated in a certain way, 
And the Ammonites, Moabites, and the Edomites who were related to Israel, going back to Lot and Esau, and then these cities that were afar off, that had nothing to do with, nothing to do with the particular reprobate and debauched practices of the Canaanites. He says, those people? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't go, don't go slaughter them. Don't just go marching into their cities and make war with them. This isn't their fight. This isn't their battle. And he even gives them permission, make peace with them. Make peace with them. When it actually comes time to go into Canaan, Moses has passed away. We're told that the Israelite spies encounter a woman named Rahab. Now, Rahab, according to the text of Scripture, was a prostitute. And she operated a kind of hostel or an inn. This wouldn't have been an unusual situation in uh, an ancient fortress or city. And, and she is befriended by the Israelite spies. And she essentially says to the Israelite spies, Hey, we know. I know who you are. And the people in this city are terrified. Please. And she makes this confession in the early chapters of Joshua. Please preserve me. And in fact, she's preserved. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. And so even here, as the story is unfolding, here's a Canaanite woman that was in the very first city that God told him to take, which was Jericho, and she's saved. She's preserved as a non-combatant. She was preserved because she confessed faith in the God of Israel. We'll see that. It'll be very interesting in just a bit. Finally, and here's a fascinating little point. Make a note of this. Caleb, of Caleb and Joshua fame, right? One of only two adults from the original generation that came out of Egypt that was allowed to go into Canaan. Scripture expressly says in Joshua 14, 14 that Caleb was the son of a man named Jephunneh who was a, who was a Kenizzite. He was a Canaanite. When you go back to God's original promise to Abraham, God says to Abraham, I will give you the land of the Amorites, the Hittites. And he starts going down the list. And one of the the nations that he lists is the Kenizzites. And yet here is Caleb, faithful, biblical Caleb. And he had Canaanitish heritage. His father was a Canaanite. And yet God regards him as faithful. God regards him as kind. He regarded him, frankly, as a Jew, as an Israelite. The Canaanites were utterly corrupt, and we're going to see this in more detail in just a second, and God warns Israel of the same fate. That's sort of the Torah narrative. That's, the, that's Genesis to Deuteronomy, the picture of God's overtures and God's accommodation and God's kindness toward Gentile peoples. Now let's just take a brief look at the larger Old Testament narrative. Do we have any other pictures in the Old Testament where God shows an interest and compassion and affection for non-Jewish peoples? And the answer is yes. The Old Testament is, is, is over-brimming, overflowing with incidences of this. I've given just a single page for time's sake. First of all, we see God's love for a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel. But not just any ordinary pagan king, mind you. Nebuchadnezzar was the king responsible for the destruction of God's temple and God's city. I mean, this guy was a real character. He was a piece of work. And yet we see in the book of Daniel that God's overtures to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel were overtures of love and of attraction and of wooing. And you even get the sense in Daniel chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar, if you can believe it, becomes a follower and a worshiper of the true God. This is just mind-blowing stuff that the very one who had been 
commissioned by God to execute a judgment on God's own people, would himself eventually, this was unheard of in ancient times, because in ancient times, if the God of one area or one state or one nation or one region conquered another God, by definition, my God was stronger than your God. So for Nebuchadnezzar to be on the losing God's side and to profess faith and, and worship of, the, of this God is just wild. Well, because he had seen miracles and he had seen primarily the character of Daniel, also of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here's a little window, a little picture into God's love even for a pagan king. Ruth the Moabite was David's ancestor, right? He was David's great-grandmother. In Isaiah 56, we find God saying, my house will be a prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. This has echoes of the original Abrahamic promise. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then finally, and perhaps most amazingly of all, Israel itself and Judah are eventually dispossessed from their own land. Which if you're paying attention to the chapters here, you'll notice that two of the chapters begin with ex, which comes from the Latin ek, which means out. Originally, they came out of Egypt into their land where they resided for many hundreds of years, but eventually, even Israel will be ek, exiled out of their own land. In other words, God is not showing favorites here. The Canaanites needed to be dispossessed and destroyed and have judgment on them, and later, Israel and Judah needed to be dispossessed and destroyed and have judgment levied upon them. Now, a New Testament context. We come to the New Testament where we see the shining, wonderful, beautiful face of Jesus Christ. Can the church say amen? And we're introduced to Jesus as never, ever, ever giving any indication that he is concerned about being polluted or contaminated either culturally or physically or socially. He just mingles with anybody and everybody. Gentiles, no problem. A woman that's bleeding, which was forbidden in Jewish custom, mingles with her. A leper, which were forbidden to be touched. Jesus is just waltzing through the New Testament, making his way through the New Testament, touching all kinds of people and associating with the most unclean. He was breaking tons of societal norms and effectively saying, this is what God is like. God is not into building barriers and building walls. God is into building bridges. God is reaching and touching the leper. God is affirming the Roman. God is speaking peaceably to the tax collector. I mean, Jesus shows up as a man who seems to have zero prejudices at all. No biases, no prejudices. In fact, if he has any prejudice, it would have been against his own people who he held to a very high standard. He was forever rebuking in the strongest language the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. But those that were weak and those that were vulnerable, whether they were outcast because of bleeding or they were outcast because of disease or leprosy or because they were outcast because of their national heritage, Jesus is like extending his hand to them. Who is this guy? And here's just a few of those instances. Jesus affirms the Roman centurion. Jesus touches and heals a leper. Jesus speaks to the Samaritan, a hated race of people at the well. Jesus speaks to a woman of Canaan, fascinatingly, the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. And he says to her, woman, your faith is great. This is Jesus speaking. This is God in the flesh. This isn't Joshua. This isn't Caleb. This isn't Moses. This is Jesus in the flesh relating to a Canaanite. And he does so with affirmation and with kindness and without any 
hint of prejudice. In fact, in Matthew 15, he actually highlights the prejudice of the disciples and then treats her with great kindness and magnanimity. Jesus and the Good Samaritan, a parable that violated tons of cultural norms in the days of Jesus. A Good Samaritan. A contradiction in terms, many would have thought. Jesus and Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, freely mingling not just across nations, but across social strata. He didn't make a difference between them and us and and you and you're below and I'm above and you're beneath. No. Jesus and the bleeding woman. Jesus and the demon-possessed man. Jesus and the adulterer even. The resounding New Testament point is that God looks like Jesus. Can somebody say amen? And I appreciate the the pensiveness that I feel in, in the congregation today. I really appreciate that because this is a big issue and it does require our attention. And I appreciate that. But it's also an opportunity to rejoice that the God that shows up in the New Testament, I want to say this, if that's what God looks like, that is really, really, really good news. Can the church say amen? Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. God looks like Jesus. All right. New Testament context continues. We come to the book of Acts. We're almost done with the New Testament. In the book of Acts, Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, in Genesis chapter 11, people's languages are confused. And so the message is not spread. In Acts chapter 2, the gift of tongues is given, and lots of people hear a single message about the crucified and risen Messiah, and you see the unraveling of humanity in Genesis 11 being put back together by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful. You have in Acts chapter 10 where Peter had that vision where he was told repeatedly, kill and eat, kill and eat, kill and eat. And he's just like, what are you talking about? I don't get it. You want me to eat an iguana sandwich? You want me to have some camel soup? He didn't get it. And then finally God says, no, it's not about camels and iguanas and eating bats. It's about not thinking of other people as inferior or as worse or as somehow below you. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles there in the house of Cornelius, Peter exclaimed these words, Peter began and said, I now realize how true it is, look at this, that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Can the church say amen to that? God shows no favoritism. Every nation. Australia, yes. America, maybe. (laughs) Jamaica, yes. Russia, yes. You know, God, he's not showing favoritism. And Peter, it's like you can just almost feel through the text of Scripture the scales dropping from his eyes, the scales of prejudice, the scales of, of, uh, of, of, of uh, bias, the, the scales of hatred. I mean, I just recently saw, it's probably a month ago now, the movie Selma, brand new movie about the experience and the life of Martin Luther King Jr. when he and a bunch of people, non-pacifists, um, uh, 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 Um, Nonviolent people marched into Selma, Alabama. It is a very hard movie to watch, to see, even in theatrical or cinematic portrayal, human beings treating other human beings as lesser or worse because they're black or because of the color of their skin or because they're sympathetic to the blacks or to the black cause. And here, Peter, you can just feel the scales falling from his eyes. Ah, I get it now. God doesn't hate anybody. He shows no favoritism. The church, of course, was composed of Jews and Gentiles. We then come to the New Testament. God is not willing that any should perish, Jew and Gentile alike, sinner and righteous alike. The three angels' message, of course, which is very near and dear to the heart of us as Seventh-day Adventists, is for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, which is one of the reasons I'm proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist. The Seventh-day Adventist is the most expansive in terms of 
nation's Protestant church in the world. This is a church that takes very seriously the mission to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. We're not just primarily located in and around America or primarily in and around Australia. This is a global church with a global message of God's global love for the whole globe. Can somebody say amen? And finally, for God so loved the world. And I ended on that point. That's the, that's the orientation. That's the big picture. Now I'm going to walk you through 10 other considerations. And these are going to require some fairly significant thought on your part. I want to start by going to Genesis 15. Go with me there. Genesis 15, the original call of God to Abraham. Join me in Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15. Hey, Nate, the battery light's blinking on this, so I don't know if you just want to run up here and give me two, double, two triple A's. Or if maybe it'll make it through, I don't know. In Genesis chapter 15, God has made a promise to give Abraham the land of the Canaanite peoples. But he says a most interesting thing in verse 16. Genesis 15, 16. In fact, this is a pivotal, crucial, determinative passage for understanding what's going to come later. Listen to what God says. God speaking to Abraham says, in the fourth generation, they will return from here. They will go into captivity, he says, but then they will come out. Listen to this. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, or as some translations say it, the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached full measure. What a strange thing to say. God says to Abraham, hey, you're going to get that land, and that's going to be your place, and your descendants are going to be there. You actually won't, Abraham. This is going to happen many generations from you. But that is actually going to happen. But not yet. Well, why not? Why can't we just march in today? Why can't we march in next Thursday? Why can't we march in next week? And God's response is, well, because their iniquity is not yet full. There are still people there that have a soft heart. There are still people there that are savable. There is still the possibility or the potentiality there that some of those people could be rescued. And so God, I want you to think about the magnanimity of God here. God puts his own plan and his own people and his own promise on hold so that he can hold out for this, this nation over here who is wicked but not yet fully and irredeemably and incorrigibly wicked. So God says, hey, I'll inconvenience you, I'll inconvenience my people, I'll inconvenience my covenant nation, I'll inconvenience myself so that I can hold out the last little glimmer of hope for these people over here. Their iniquity is not yet complete. The patience of God here is on gigantic display. From Copen and Flanagan's book, Did God Really Command Genocide? I read hundreds of pages this week alone, and cumulatively on this topic, I would have read thousands of pages. In their book, Did God Really Command Genocide? They say, look, the account of entrance into Canaan, where we are now, in the book of Joshua comes after a long narrative that begins in the book of what? Where does it begin? Genesis. The point is that Abram give it was given this land as a means to bless the whole world and reverse the curse of Babel. This is not God playing favorite with the Israelites. This is God preparing to bless the whole world through the Israelites. So if something goes wrong here, something will go wrong not just for Israel, but for the whole world. 
You could say that God has all of his chips on the Israelites' table. God is betting on the success of the Israelites. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, that bet didn't go so well, you would be exactly right, but also exactly wrong. We don't have time to develop that. You would be right that the children of Israel failed miserably, but there was an Israelite who succeeded marvelously, and his name was Jesus, and he kept covenant with God. But at this point, it's hugely important to recognize that this isn't, the Bible doesn't open with God on some kind of a warmongering rampage. Joshua doesn't show up until we've been through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And for much of that time, God has said to his own people, wait, the iniquity over here is not yet full. I need patience. I need compassion. I need you to bear with me. So that's number one. A a secondary consideration is that the land was legally the Israelites. Now, this is an important point. I want you to join me in Genesis 49. Genesis 49. That's a bold claim I'm making right there, that the land was legally the Israelites. Think about this simple illustration. If you are to go into somebody else's home and dispossess them, you will be charged with assault. But if you come to your own home and there's a hostile party there who refuses to leave, you could, under certain circumstances, dispossess them with no punishment. You see, it's the difference between me going to somebody else's house to inflict an external punishment, but what if somebody's in my house? What if I'm not the trespasser, but somebody else is the trespasser? So this is a big claim for me to say that the land was legally the Israelites. Look at Genesis 49. Genesis 49, and pick it up in verse 29. Genesis 49, 29. This is just as Jacob is about ready to die. This is right at the end of the book of Genesis. It says, Then Jacob charged them and said, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite." In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham, what did he do? He bought. Which Abraham bought with the field, which he bought as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and he died. What a fascinating little detail here. Hey, don't leave my bones here, he says, Jacob says, the grandson of Abraham. Don't leave my bones here because my granddad purchased a a field and that field had a cave in it. He purchased land and he's buried there and his wife is buried there and my dad is buried there and my mom is buried there and I'm going to be, I buried my wife there and I'm going to be buried there. Don't leave my bones here. Interestingly, look at Exodus. You're in Genesis. Look at Exodus 13. When the Israelites went up out of Egypt, not only did they bring Jacob's bones, which may have been transported earlier, but look at who else's bones they brought. Exodus chapter 13 and verse 19. It says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Well, why? As some kind of a relic or a lucky charm? No. For he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Joseph said, don't leave my bones here. 
put them in the cave of Machpelah. Now, this is hugely significant, and it's legally significant in the ancient Near East. Notice what is said here. The land belonged legally to Abraham and his descendants. At least portions of it did. Again, Copen and Flanagan in their book, Did God Really Commit Gen- Command Genocide? The reference to a burial site is significant. In the ancient Near East, acquiring a burial plot was a sign of permanent occupation, much like a cemetery today. So the commands occur in the context of the Canaanites living on land that Israel's ancestors had, watch this, lived on, owned property in, and to which they had legal title for the purpose of establishing a community through which salvation would be brought to the world. Hence, as the commands occur in the biblical narrative, the Canaanites are, strictly speaking, trespassers. Moreover, the book of Joshua portrays Canaanites as aware of this fact. And this is very interesting. Rahab, when the Israelite spies encounter Rahab, look at what she says to the Israelite spies. The Hebrew spies in Jericho, I know that the Lord has given you this land. If she knew it, it meant all of Jericho knew it and all of the Canaanites knew it. In fact, you find again and again in the book of Joshua that when the Israelites come to a certain city or a certain region, they say our hearts were melting with fear because we knew that God had given you this land. This is a frank admission of being a trespasser. It goes on to say, similarly, the men of Gibeon, who were Canaanite peoples, that came to Joshua, they say to Joshua, hey, we were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his his servant Moses to give Israel the whole land. Hence, when Israel is commanded to attack these nations, they are not, as far as the narrator is concerned, conquering or attacking an innocent nation and stealing their land. Rather, Israel is repossessing land that already belongs to them and evicting people who are trespassing on it and refusing to leave. Now, this is a very different scenario. Breaking into somebody else's house is an act punishable. Going into your own house and finding somebody who doesn't belong there and who refuses to leave is a very different situation. The land was legally the Israelites. After all, God owns the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and God had given it to them. Number three, this is a hugely important point. This is why, one of the main reasons why, what we encounter in the Old Testament is not genocide. Because the dispossession and destruction of the Canaanites, listen very carefully, was not on ethnic grounds. It was not on ethnic grounds. It was on moral grounds. Now let me just show you a couple texts to this effect. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1. Deuteronomy 9.1. Hear, O Israel... You are to cross over the Jordan today and to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to the heaven, a people great and tall and descendants of Anakim, they were giants, whom you know and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you so that you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. Now watch this. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you and say this. He says to the Israelites, don't say this. Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into this to possess this land. 
but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which he swore to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, because you are a stubborn people. Wow, this is fascinating. God is clear here. He essentially is saying, hey, this isn't about you. At the end of the day, I'm not blessing you because you're a little more righteous or a little more pious or a little more, you know, good. God says, I'm kicking them out for the reason that I told Abraham way back when I said their iniquity is not yet full. No one could have said, well, we're a little better. They could look down their nose at those black people or those Canaanite people or those white people or whatever the the divisions that we make among peoples. God says, this is not about you being better. This is about them being bad, really, really bad. What was the nature of their badness? Leviticus 18, beginning in verse 2. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. That's verses 2 to 5. Now we jump all the way down to verse 21. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name or the character of your God. One of the major facets that was taking place, one of the major worship facets that was taking place in and around Canaan, this comes up again and again and again in both Torah and in Joshua. It comes up a, few, a couple times in Joshua, primarily in Torah, is these people sacrifice their children to gods. Don't even dream of doing that in my name. You would defame and defile my character. Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Here Moses gives this picture, God through Moses gives this picture that it's almost like the land is disgusted with these inhumane practices. In fact, the language that he uses is quite picturesque. Watch this. Therefore I visited the punishment of its iniquity upon it. The land vomits out its inhabitants. Wow, what a picture. What a picture here that the land is defiled and the land, it's not even primarily God here who's like, man, I just can't handle these people. They drive me crazy. They're annoying. What what it ends up being is that God says the land is defiled. The land is profaned. The land is disturbed. Therefore, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you also out if you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Notice that God is an equal opportunity uh, um, um, judge. He says, hey, look, they've defiled the land. They will be dispossessed and destroyed. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out too. So God here is not cleansing on ethnic grounds. He's not saying, oh, man, I just can't stand Canaanites. The the shape of their nose drives me crazy, or I don't like the color of their skin. It has nothing to do with 
genetics or with genealogy. It has to do with their behavior, with their moral attitude, and especially with their worship, which God regarded as abominable because it involved, among other things, temple prostitution and the sacrifice of innocence to some god that Scripture says were actually demons. They were sacrificing their children to demons. Another passage here from Leviticus. Therefore you shall keep my commandments so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Now this is a very interesting point. Just before Joshua is about ready to go into the land, okay, he has a dream. He actually has a vision. You might remember this is in Joshua chapter 5, and Joshua's about ready to go in to take the children of Israel. They've come over the Jordan, and he's about ready to go start taking first Jericho and later Ai and to march into Canaan. And a fascinating thing happens. Jesus shows up. Now, the Bible doesn't say Jesus here. It says the commander of the armies of the Lord, but it's clearly Jesus in the context. Now, watch this. This is absolutely mind-blowing. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was, by, Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man, capital M, stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him because he, he looks like a warrior. And Joshua's like, whoa, because he's a warrior as well and he recognizes, but there must have been something about his posture or his stance and he thought, uh, he's not attacking me. That's not, a, that's not a, an aggressive posture. And he says, uh, he's got his hand on his sword. I can just imagine, are you for us or our adversaries? What an interesting question. Hey, are you on our side or their side? And look at his answer. His answer. What an unusual answer. And he said, no. No is not an answer. But it is. See, Joshua was saying, are you on the Jews' side or the Canaanites' side? Are you on our side or their side? Are you for us or for them? And Jesus says, no. Or as many translations say, neither. Neither. No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord and I have now come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take the sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. I want you to think about that right there. Jesus shows up to Joshua just as he's on the verge of the conquest of Canaan. Joshua's question is, are you for us or for them? Are you on our side or their side? Are you for us or against us? And Jesus says, neither. Because Jesus is for everybody. Can the church say amen? Jesus loves everybody. He loves the Canaanites and he loves the Jews. This wasn't about some division ethnically or some division even covenantally because God brought the covenant to Abraham for the purpose of letting everybody in the front door. This is why when we come to the New Jerusalem, there are 12 gates in the city. The only reason you would put 12 gates on a city is if you're trying to maximize access Get as many people in as possible. And so Joshua's question as a warrior is, are you for us or against us? And God's answer is no. Because God so loved the world. Mm. Now here's an interesting one, number four. When Joshua actually goes in and takes Jericho, and I'll be very brief about this point, Rahab is preserved because she put that little red cord out her window. You might remember that. But Achan who was an Israelite, took a Babylonian garment and he took some silver and he took a wedge of gold and he hid it. Now these two stories are in Joshua 5 and 6 and they are purposefully set in juxtaposition to show you 
that God is not dividing on ethnic grounds because Achan was a Jew and was stoned to death for his crime and Rahab was a Canaanite and was preserved alive. He hid his sin. She showed her faith. What other purpose would this little detail about Achan serve in the story? What other purpose would this detail about Rahab? Rahab was only one person among perhaps a hundred or perhaps hundreds or maybe even a few thousand that were killed in Jericho. By the way, don't think that Jericho was this teeming metropolis like hundreds of thousands of people. No, it would have been, I listened to a scholarly report, a scholarly lecture just this week. There could have been as few as 200 people in Jericho. It was a military fortress. It was an outpost. You had hundreds of thousands of Israelites and they marched around it seven times in a day. It wasn't a giant, big, you know, metropolis, metro, uh, metropolitan area. There could have been, you know, maybe a couple thousand people there, but there wouldn't have been many more than that, I don't think. In ancient times, first of all, there were many fewer people than there are today. So why include this little detail about a single woman who saves her family and some of her friends? Well, because God wants you to see, here's Achan, he's a Jew, he hides his sin, he's killed. Here's Rahab, she's a Canaanite, she professes faith in the one true God, and she's preserved set in immediate contrast and juxtaposition to let you know this is not an ethnic cleansing, and for that reason, it's not a genocide. This is a judgment on disobedience, not a genocide against people that God is prejudiced against or otherwise hates. Now, child sacrifice and idolatry are absolutely key, and I need to spend just a little bit of time on this, not a ton. Again, Copen and Flanagan. It is worth noting that most of these practices, okay? I just want you to think about the things they were doing. He's going to give us a list here. What if these things were happening in Australia in 2015? How would the Australian government relate? Let's see. It is worth noting that most of these practices are illegal today, even in modern Western nations, and no religious group that practice incest, ritual prostitution, bestiality, or human sacrifice would be tolerated even in contemporary societies with freedom of religion laws. And that's a great point. I actually spent some time reading this week about the specific practices of the Canaanites, and frankly, I couldn't even communicate about 75% of them because they would be totally inappropriate in a, in a situation where there are young people. Child sacrifice is already pushing the edges, but the stuff that were taking place in Canaan, you, you can't even say in a public forum. You'd have to have all adults that people sign like a consent form, like, are you willing to hear this? Yeah, I'll hear that. Okay? If that was happening right now in Australia in some religious compound, the Australian government wouldn't just say, oh, freedom of religion. No, they would act because that freedom of religion was truncating and destroying the rights and lives of young people, perhaps by the hundreds or thousands. Remember, God gave them generation after generation after generation to come to repentance, but instead of coming to repentance, they perfected demon worship. Look at this. Moreover, in many jurisdictions such as various states of the United States, adults who engage in human sacrifice would face the death penalty. And I support that, incidentally. No, it's not popular in Australia, but if somebody is going to take life, I stand by the simple biblical maximum, maxim, not out of revenge or out of uh, 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 any sort of punishment, but that's just a consequence. Eye, eye, tooth, tooth, death, death. doesn't mean that somebody can't come to repentance, but certainly in biblical times, Certainly in biblical times, if a life was taken, a life was demanded. And today in Australia, if people were practicing these things, we wouldn't just say all religious liberty. They would be severely punished. And if some of those things happen in certain states, even 
Western countries, people would be punished by death. So why is it so much different what God is doing? Now, hence the practices in question were not are serious crimes, not trivial practices of mere personal preference. Richard Swinburne in What Does the Old Testament Mean says this, God's reason for issuing this command according to the Old Testament was to preserve the young monotheistic religion of Israel from lethal spiritual infection by the polytheism of the Canaanites. He was deadly afraid that there would be a mingling, and of course that's exactly what happened. A religion which included child sacrifice and cultic prostitution, such a spiritual infection was without a doubt a very real danger. I'll just read you briefly if you want to join me. I should be able to land the plane here in about 10 minutes. I know this is long, but it doesn't. You don't put 20 hours of study into something and stand up for 30 minutes. Go to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, if you're still tuned in. If you're not, enjoy those comfortable chairs. Psalm 106. Beginning in verse 34, I'll race through this. Psalm 106, beginning in verse 34. The psalmist here is recounting the experience of the of the conquering of Canaan. And he says, They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and they learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Now this is Israel, verse 37. Israel even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works, and they played the harlot by their deeds. Therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people, so that he abhorred his own inheritance. Notice that God is equal in his opportunity of judgment. He had said, these people are being kicked out of the land because they commit these abominable practices that defile the land. And then he said to Israel, if you do it, you will be similarly dispossessed. And they did, and they were. That's the point. It's not genocide. God, if, if that kind of, of terrible treatment of young people, which we understand intuitively is wrong, and you might wonder, like, maybe you've read the Old Testament and thought, why is there all these weird things in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Leviticus, where it's like, you know, don't sleep with an animal, and don't boil a kid in its mother's milk, and don't sleep with your niece, and, and it's like all this weird stuff. You think, why does God, is God some kind of a pervert? He's mentioning all this weird stuff. no. They were going into a land where these things were common practice. So he lists all of that to say, hey, I know what's going on over there. Don't do that. And there's this weird one. Three times in the law it says, really strange, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. What a, what a strange thing. Don't boil a little goat in the milk of its mother. What, why? Well, this was apparently a heathen practice, and God find it, found it particularly uh, affronting for this reason. The milk of a mother is designed to bring life and health and nourishment. And God says, if you take that thing that's designed for life and make it bring death, I find that abominable. Don't do that. God essentially is saying, that's disgusting. Have you lost your mind? That's what he's saying about the whole situation. So, a few more things here, very quickly. Dispossession versus destruction. This is an important sort of this is a very important point in terms of the way that God said that the Canaanites were to be destroyed. If you do a word study on phrases like drive out or thrust out or send away, it occurs 33 times. This is in Torah and in Joshua. 
And if you do a word study on destroy or perish or kill, it occurs 11 times. Now, I could spend a lot of time going through the textual reasons for this, but let me just give you the very short reason, what appears, I believe, was happening. First of all, Joshua did not just go marching into Canaan in a week or a month. It took years. In fact, even when Joshua dies, Canaan is not yet settled. It went years. In fact, the whole book of Judges, Canaanites are everywhere. They're all over the place. We're going to spend a whole, we're going to spend a lot of time, three sermons in the book of Judges, seeing that the Canaanites are still around. So God was not saying, go and exterminate these people. What he was saying is, kick them out of the land. And the, the expectation was, as you probably would too, if you knew that a people were coming, and you knew that they'd marched around a city seven times, and that city had fallen supernaturally, you're going to flee. God's expectation, he says it again and again, I will drive them out, I will drive them out, I will drive them out. And only those, listen carefully, because this is a crucial and subtle distinction, only those who refused to leave and who remained in a military posture against the Israelites were eventually destroyed. I hope you get the point. In fact, here's a subtle, a hugely important but subtle point. God never gives a command to pursue and hunt down the Canaanites. He never says, go into the hills and go into the hedges and go into the rocky crevasses and find them and exterminate them. No, God wasn't interested in blood. He just wanted the land, which I remind you, was legally theirs anyway. So here's what's happening. Over the course of years, miraculous deliverances are happening and the word is getting out among the Canaanites that Israel is marching through the land. And I believe that the vast majority of those people, when they saw that Israel was coming, were fleeing. And we know that because they show up again later in the book of Judges. And when they fled, the cities that were fortresses and strongholds, they, the people that remained in there in a hostile posture toward God and his people, they were eventually killed. And it's very unlikely that there were many women and children that remained. They would have fled. So you have a three-to-one ratio of drive out, thrust out, send away to kill, perish, and destroy. Very important. The judgment upon these kingdoms was to dispossess them of the land and thus to destroy their kingdoms, not necessarily to destroy every single person. God wanted those kingdoms erased from the earth. There was no command to pursue and hunt down the Canaanite peoples. God is not a bounty hunter. He's not a warmonger. Israel were not so much conquerors as refugees in need of a home. And this is particularly poignant for us right now with the massive refugee crisis that's going on. Let me ask you this question. How do you feel about those people that have driven these refugees by the hundreds of thousands out into the streets? How do you feel about that? Do you feel like that's acceptable behavior? Well, remember, the Israelites are not so much a conquering nation. They have been oppressed for hundreds of years in a foreign nation. They're now refugees going back to their own home. And here are protesters and trespassers who refuse to leave and who are sacrificing, among other things, their children to demons. And God's like, those people got to go. Look at this statement here from David Lamb, God behaving badly. Unlike Assyria and Moab, which were expanding their own borders to enrich their own kingdoms, Israel were refugees who had experienced hundreds of years of oppression in a foreign land. They needed a place to live and they were attempting to gain a homeland. How very appropriate and poignant that we would be coming to this point right now when we are in the midst of a massive global crisis of refugees and immigrants looking just for a place to lay their head. That's the Israelites. Not a conquering, marauding army. 
but people who have been in Egyptian captivity and wandering in the desert for years who need a place to live, a place that was rightfully, covenantally, and legally theirs. Cities were fortresses and strongholds. Don't think of cities like Gold Coast. Okay, the cities were not like Toowoomba. These were, these were fortresses. They were citadels. They were military establishments. And they were taken out because they were in a hostile posture to God and his possession. Israel was similarly dispossessed, as we've already mentioned. Here are the dates. Oh, let me just give you a quick quote here. The text, therefore, continually and repeatedly states that the Canaanites will, will, be, will not be exterminated in the sense that the Israelites are to kill every single man, woman, and child in Canaan. Rather, it states that they are to be driven out. For example, this is a good illustration. If you, if you state that you had driven an intruder from your house, no one would assume that the intruder was dead on your living room floor. Similarly, if you said you killed an intruder, one would not normally think that this meant that the intruder had been driven out. The command, you go back and you read it, it says it again and again, drive them out, drive them out, drive them out. It wasn't an extermination, it wasn't a genocide. And Israel themselves were similarly dispossessed. Israel was destroyed by Assyria, in 722 BC, and Judah was eventually destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. We've already mentioned him. Very likely he became converted and a follower of the one true God, though astonishingly he was the one responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, the final destruction of Judah by Babylon took place uh, right at the uh, end of the 6th century BC. Right? So, so this, the point here is that God is not, and I know I've said this, but I'm just going to make one last point on this. He's not favorable to the Jews because they're ethnically superior or because he's got you know, some sort of prejudice or bias toward them. No, God says, these are people that are worshiping in a demonic way. They are sacrificing their children. They are participating in all kinds of corrupt and abominable deeds. And think about it this way. Every passing generation, the city gets larger, the community gets larger, and more children are subjected to a situation that they wouldn't be subjected to if those cultures didn't exist. Now, that's a little tricky thing to think about. You've got to kind of put your God hat on for a minute and think big picture. Not just one person, but think big picture. I actually heard an illustration that I found very challenging. And let me put it to you. I know it's a little late on time, but let me put this very challenging illustration to you. Imagine that there are three airliners that have been hijacked. That's not difficult to imagine in the post-9-11 world. Three airliners have been hijacked, filled with, say, 300 people each. The first one has already been flown into a large building, and thousands are dead. The second has been flown into a sports stadium, and thousands are dead. And the third one is still in the air. And your government, let's say it happened in Australia or in America, your government has scrambled jet fighters that have pulled alongside of that jet and have said, land this plane, there's an airport right over here, if you don't immediately make a turn in your trajectory to land this plane safely over here, then you will be shot down. Now, you and I know that there are innocent people on that plane. But we also can look at the trajectory where they're going, and let's say they're going to a populated center where thousands will stand to die. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the Australian government would do? And even though innocence may die in the process, most of us in this room would say that is the thing they should do. Now, I wouldn't want to be the one that pulled the trigger, 
But it would be incorrect to think that 99 out of 100 governments on planet Earth wouldn't do exactly that, faced with that situation. Well, this is the situation God's in. This airliner is set to kill generations and generations and generations of people who will never have an opportunity to know the true God. So what's God supposed to do? Sit idly by? All right. You guys have been very generous. God is necessarily a accommodationist. The destruction and dispossession of the Canaanites is embedded in a concessionary, permissive context overall. The commands were contingent on a situation where things have badly broken down. Clearly, this is a post-Eden world. This is a post-fall world where things have gone to hell in a handbasket. God is making an accommodation. He's making a concession. By the way, God is always doing this. The police force right now we got Brendan in here somewhere maybe, but we have, we have members of this congregation who are, who are on the police force. But the police do not do a good job of stopping all crime. They do a good job of stopping the crime that they stop. But God could do a much better job of stopping crime, don't you agree? Yeah, because God could do it 100% effectively. So why does God allow a police force to do it? Because this is the world we live in. We live in a world where God is accommodating himself to humans, to their language, to their lives, to their diseases, to their hypocrisies, to their inconsistencies, and to their immorality. God could just show up and wipe the slate clean. Of course, the great story of Scripture is that he'd be wiping all of us clean. But God could have done far more efficiently for the Canaanites the conquering of the land himself. So why does he use Canaan to do it? Because he's accommodating a badly fallen, badly broken, perverted, terrible world that we were never designed to experience or see. In a fallen world, there are things which are sadly commanded, and I love this, and commanded sadly. God didn't say with a general uh, military triumphalism, go in there and whack those people. God's heart would have been broken. In fact, in Isaiah 28, when it comes to destruction, the destruction of the wicked, it calls it God's strange act. And it is a strange thing for somebody to create something and then destroy it. A sculptor, sculpture to make a beautiful sculpture and then destroy it. For a builder to build a beautiful house and then burn it down. Wouldn't that be strange? And yet all of us are God's creations. And there comes a time, sadly, tragically, when even some of God's own creations have so modeled themselves after the image of this world and the image of Satan that they themselves have given themselves over to these practices. They have so identified with these practices that God has to destroy his own creation or better said, allow them to destroy themselves. And scripture says this is a strange, weird unusual thing for God to do because God is the giver of life. Look at this. These commands do not so much reveal the glories of God's nature, but rather the dreadfulness of human fallenness. I'll probably never preach on this again, so I'm just going to give you the whole enchilada. You're going to get it all because this is not like I look forward to preaching on this subject. All right. Two final quotes, and I think we're there. Patriarchs and Prophets from Ellen White, where she's describing the taking of the land. This is one of the most powerful, power-packed quotes that she ever wrote. I remember the first time I was exposed to this, I wasn't even yet a believer. I was becoming a believer, and I was like, whoa, that's a heavy quotation. Satan deceives many with the plausible theory that God's love for his people is so great that he will excuse sin in them. It's plausible. It's almost believable because God's love is so great. It's almost believable. He represents that while the threatenings of God's word are to serve a certain purpose in his moral government, they are never to be literally fulfilled. But in all his dealings with his creatures, God has maintained the principles of righteousness by revealing sin in its true character. 
by demonstrating that its sure result is misery and death. The unconditional pardon of sin never has been and never will be. Such pardon would show the abandonment of the principles of righteousness, which are the very foundation of the government of God. It would fill the unfallen universe with consternation. God has faithfully pointed out the results of sin, and if these warnings were not true, how could we be sure that His promises would be fulfilled? That so-called benevolence which would set aside justice is not benevolence but weakness. This is an interesting one. God is the life giver. This is the point I was just making about how it's a strange thing for God to destroy. God is the life giver. From the beginning, all his laws were ordained to life. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. But sin broke in as an intruder, as a trespasser. Sin broke in upon the order that God had established and discord followed. So long as sin exists, suffering and death are inevitable. And God knows this. So he is trying to put an end to sin and death. But some people have so identified themselves with sin that they themselves have to be destroyed or otherwise dispossessed. Final quotation. You guys have made it. You've made it. You've survived. This comes from Miroslav Volf, Volf, a Yale theologian. And read this. He's one of the best-known contemporary theologians of the day. Listen to what he says. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. We've labored to make that point here this morning. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come, says Miroslav. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. Things that you couldn't say in a mixed audience. And I could not imagine that God would not be angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death by dull machetes in a hundred days. How did God react to this carnage? By, by doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? Should he have smiled and patted them on the back? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Of course he was. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of this world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. And in the same way that you and I would be indignant at a rape, indignant at abuse, indignant at injustice, God is infinitely holy. What did he see when he saw Canaan? He saw something that had gone so far off the rails, it had to be stopped. It wasn't just about the Canaanites genealogically because God gave the same punishment to Israel centuries later. God's passion is for holiness. God's passion is for righteousness. God's passion is for love. God looks like Jesus and God is love. And precisely as Miroslav Volf says, because he is love... He cannot tolerate rabid sin, gross injustice, and perverse demonic iniquity. I want to thank you for your attention to this presentation. It's not been an easy one to study out or to present. But I think the takeaway lesson for me is, and the takeaway lesson for you is, 
The practical application, apart from the, the apologetic needs that we have to give a good answer to those that would ask, you cannot make peace with the Canaanites in your heart. You cannot make peace with the things in your life that God hates. You can't dwell peaceably with things that kill Jesus. We cannot dwell peaceably with things that are built around injustice and unkindness and, and the worship of demons. And I suppose, to put maybe a fine point on it, it doesn't look well for us when we entertain ourselves with movies or books or programs where things that God hates are on full display as entertainment. God can't make peace with that. Not in a cinema, not in a theater, and not in real life, and not in a book. And so the giant takeaway for me in this study, and I hope a takeaway for you, is that God is not out to make peace with the Canaanites in my heart and in your heart. God wants them eradicated. He wants them extirpated. He wants all of us to become descendants of Abraham, to become followers of the one true God, to become Israel. Father in heaven, you've been with us today. This has not been easy to deliver, and I'm certain it's not been easy to hear, either for the length or for the complexity of the topic or of the disturbing nature of the topic. But Father, here it is, and we can preach flowery, happy sermons all day long, and, and I love those flowery, happy sermons. But Father, sometimes we have to wrestle with the text, and you know, as well as I know, and many biblically literate people here would know, this is only the scratching of the surface of the problematic text in Scripture, but at least it shows us a way forward. We don't have to leave our brains on the door. We don't have to leave our hearts on the door. Father, we can, we can journey through the Old Testament and into the New Testament with a renewed and robust confidence that you, that God, looks like Jesus. The Jesus who said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, not just rest from work, not just rest from anxiety, but rest from sin. Rest from the Canaanite tendencies in our lives. Rest from the tendency to be entertained by things that kill Jesus. Father, teach us how to rest in holiness, how to rest in righteousness, and how to rest in love. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Let all of God's saints say, Amen. Amen.